This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. The summer of 2016 saw a major triumph for rising tide conservation with the successful spawning and rearing of Pacific Blue Tangs at the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Lab. Breeding Dory became the headlines and story for news outlets around the world. But commercialization is still in progress and many other species are also in rising tide sites. Matt DiMaggio and Eric Cassiano, two U.S. scientists instrumental in the success of the Pacific Blue Tang Project, continue their efforts to support aquaculture of aquarium species and conservation. Join us as Matt and Eric describe their rising tide research and the excitement of breeding dory. We'll be right back after these messages. I love cleaning the litter box, said no one ever. Luckily, there's World's Best Cat Litter, the litter that promises less mess with less litter. Only World's Best Cat Litter uses the concentrated power of corn to quickly trap odors in tight clumps. And quick clumping means you never have to chisel or scrape the box. Less cleanup with less wasted litter? That's a litter bit amazing. Save $2 on World's Best Cat Litter. Visit www.saveonworldsbest.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guests today are Matt DiMaggio and Eric Cassiano, aquaculture research scientists based at the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Hi, Matt and Eric. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, Roy. So, I know, Eric, we've talked with you a little before. Matt, you're, uh, you've been here at the Aquaculture Lab a while, but we haven't had the the opportunity of doing an interview. So as Eric knows, I kind of like to ask a few personal questions, nothing too personal, but, but for uh, <laughs> first one for you, Matt, how did you first get interested in aquarium fish and can you describe your first tank and your first fish? Sure. I, I really started out with aquarium fish, you know, as a, as a young kid, my first tank was uh, like a little three gallon hexagonal with a goldfish, uh, which I'm sure most kids usually start out with something similar. And then it kind of grew from there. I was always interested in fish, a lot of uh, outdoors, always fishing and by the ocean and the marine environment. So that sort of contributed to my interest. And then I uh, worked at a fish hatchery after college, raising uh, trout and salmon. And then from there, went on to, you know, to grad school and ornamentals. And ornamental fish in general provide a real, you know, just abundance. There's so much diversity, so many different species to work with. That's, you know, one of the really attractive things about, you know, aquarium fish to me is, is you know, there's always something new to learn, a new species to work with. Okay. Well, so tell us a little bit about, I guess, that jump. So what made you decide to go into fish research as a graduate student? And then how did you end up getting here at the Tropical Aquaculture Lab and, and working with Rising Tide? So I did a general, uh, you know, undergraduate degree in biology, and then from there uh, I did two and a half years of cancer research following that degree. And then as a logical transition, I went right from cancer to aquaculture. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
perfect sense. But again, uh, the fish in general had always been an interest of mine, so I wanted to get a graduate degree and go on for uh, you know for some graduate education. And I ended up at the University of Florida for a master's down in Fort Pierce, doing research on uh, marine bait fish and some ornamentals while I was down there at that time. Stayed on through a PhD. I really liked it. I always knew I wanted to go into a career in academia, you know, work at a university. I left UF and went and did a two-year postdoc at the University of New Hampshire, doing some work up there with black sea bass and southern flounder, also some river herring. And from there, I was lucky enough that the job opening at UF came up at the right time. There was an opening here at the lab when I applied and was fortunate enough uh, you know, to, to get the position here. Now my, my research focus here at the lab is, is working with the Florida ornamental industry, both the freshwater growers and the marine growers, you know, to try and find ways to improve their production, improve you know, the efficiency of the species that they are currently producing, as well as to try and help them develop new species for production. And that's sort of where we're at with the marine ornamental side of things with rising tide conservation. Rising tide started at the lab before I was even here. You know, Craig Watson was instrumental in bringing that to the lab. And Eric was also, you know, instrumental in starting the program here at the lab. And I was able to, to come in and, you know, hit the ground running with everyone else, trying to figure out some new species for the marine ornamental industry and how to do these. So it's, it's been a great fit so far, and it's been really, you know, great to work with everyone here at the lab. It's a great group of people, a great team, and we have some really cool and interesting projects going on. Thanks a lot for that. Hey, so Eric, we've had the pleasure of speaking with you uh, before, but can you give us a quick reminder of how you went from oysters to rising tide and marine fish? Sure, sure. I was out at Oregon State University doing oyster research as a technician, like you said. And I decided that I wanted to get a higher degree, that being a master's degree, and but I didn't want to stay in Oregon. So being originally from the East Coast, I decided to come back to the East Coast and uh, explore those options and found that the University of Florida had a, a pretty young but program that suited my needs. And I went down to Cedar Key, used some of that bivalve research that I had at Oregon State and worked for Leslie Sturmer in the hard claim industry as her program assistant for a year, really just to gain residency. And after that, I uh, applied for a graduate assistantship with Dr. Courtney O's, and he gave me a project which I had absolutely no idea what it was, which was growing copepods to feed to marine fish. And I had no clue what that meant, but I very quickly became a master of that, if you will, I suppose. After two years of doing that, I graduated, had my master's degree. It was uh, pretty good at growing copepods. And that was around the time that, like Matt alluded to, Craig Watson and Rising Tide and Judy St. Ledger all came together and were looking to make this a real thing, uh, the Rising Tide program. And uh, Craig hired me, and I've been here for about six years, mostly doing marine live feeds. But like Matt said, we've had a lot of success, so that's how it came to be at the lab. Thanks a lot for that too, Eric. So Matt, can you briefly remind the, our listeners what Rising Tide Conservation is and you know how it started and maybe some of the collaborators? Sure. Rising Tide originally started with uh, SeaWorld Bush Gardens Conservation Fund. It was sort of born out of that program, sort of the brainchild of Dr. Judy St. Ledger, trying to sort of stimulate and promote research into a sustainable aquaculture of marine ornamental fishes. And again, looking at using aquaculture as a tool for conservation. It started, I think it's about six years or so old now. 
originally uh, UF here, the Tropical Aquaculture Lab, was one of the, the initial collaborators. Since then, it's grown to include the Indian River Research and Education Center, which is over on the east coast of Florida, uh, Dr. Courtney O's, Dr. Chad Callum out at the Oceanic Institute, which is uh, Hawaii Pacific University right now. We brought on, just recently, uh, Judy brought on uh, Mark Drawbridge and his team out at Hub SeaWorld. Mick Walsh and Patrick Rice down at Florida Keys Community College. I believe they brought on Mystic Aquarium too, Roger Williams University, Andy Ryan up at Roger Williams, and then a whole host of industry partners and people uh, from the industry, uh, PetSmart and and Petco, Instant Ocean, which is a spectrum, a a whole host of of people who are supporting the work either with monetary donations, donations of uh, infrastructure and supplies that we need to conduct the research, It's really been a great collaboration between both people in the research area like academia and the industry and public zoos and aquariums were another uh, big part of this initially, uh, supplying eggs uh, that were initially screened to figure out, you know, what larvae would be able to be raised, things like that. It's, It's really been a great collaboration of all these different entities all working towards the same goal of trying to figure out how we raise some of these different species that haven't ever been raised before, things like tangs and butterfly fish, all that kind of stuff. And again, it's all about, you know, developing the technology, getting that technology out to the industry, you know, so that some of these research products can become realities in terms of, you know, commercial production. And also it's super important for, you know, the sharing of that information, not only with the industry, but with the the public, with the hobbyists to really be transparent. And, And that's one of the things that that's also been super successful is the collaboration between, for example, like Chad Callen and us here at the lab with the Tang Research. There's a, a website, uh, risingtideconservation.org, where you go visit it. There's a list of stakeholders as far as the research guys are concerned. You know, as Matt alluded to, it's it's too numerous at this point in time after six or seven years in to really list everybody. It's grown quite a bit and it's become quite a family effort. So it's a, it's a great thing that Judy's done there. So go visit the website and there's a, a big list of uh, contributors there. Yeah, and we'll definitely include the, the website links on your uh, on the bio page. So Eric... Um, Let's, let's move on to you then. How were the rising tide species chosen? And can you maybe give us a little bit of the early history of work on the Pacific blue tanks and explain why they're such an important aquarium species to, to sure. breed? Yeah, yeah, sure. Initially, there was five species that were chosen at the first stakeholder meeting. All the stakeholders at the time sat down and talked about sustainability issues, of course, was uh, first and foremost on a lot of people's minds, but also just, uh, you know, reasonable access to broodstock, uh, species that were desirable in the trade, and uh, and a list of other things, too. And so we decided on those five species. Uh, Pacific blue tangs, of course, were one of them. Yellow tangs were another. Bartless anthias was one. An angelfish, the uh, emperor angelfish, and the bangai cardinal fish as well. Uh, the bangais were looked at more for virology issues or virus issues in the trade. But the other ones were more looked at for just husbandry and, and can we actually raise these fish uh, type of approach. It was pretty exciting early on. We also uh, had a grant where we were looking at aquarium collections and uh, the biologist at, uh, say, Florida Aquarium or SeaWorld or Columbus Zoo and Aquarium were collecting eggs that were being spawned nightly, really, uh, in their exhibits. And, and mind you, at the, in the beginning, we thought, you know, these exhibits can be quite large, uh, hundreds of thousands of gallons. And are we going to be able to get a one millimeter egg out of a hundred, uh, that big of a, of a system? So even that proved to be a success 
after about a year, we realized, oh, wow, we're getting a lot of eggs. And so it also allowed us to look at different species that we hadn't thought of before, like the banner fish or uh, the millet seed butterfly fish. There was a whole slew of other fish that we hadn't even thought to look at. And that was one of those uh, projects where we were sort of a screening process of species to see what was going to be reasonable and what was going to be uh, easy to do. I don't want to say easy, but uh, reasonable to, to attempt to rear. Um, and out of that, of course, came a lot of the preliminary information on the Pacific Blue Tang. Uh, Columbus Zoo and Aquarium was uh, one that I can think of off the top of my head. I think there was another one, maybe the shed. I can't quite remember another aquarium. But we were getting consistent blue tang eggs from them. And how we knew that was we would send off the eggs and get them DNA analyzed, which was just another neat tool in itself to try to identify what was spawning. Because at the time, of course, we weren't growing much of anything past 10 or 15 days. Uh, and that was just more for uh, husbandry and, and tank issues. We just, you know, we just didn't have what we needed to grow them. Of course, now we know that at the time we didn't, which made it fun. Uh, a lot of the reasons why we continued to look at the blue tang specifically was uh, it's a heavily imported fish. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, Ryan et al., I forget the name of the paper. Maybe Matt can remember. I want to say that off of that data, it was the 12th most imported fish into the, into the United States. There's a high price associated with it, relatively. And, um, and also, of course, Finding Dory, extremely popular movie. And uh, we thought that perhaps maybe the sales might increase or maybe there might be uh, a more of a demand for that fish in the market. And, uh, and so a lot of, uh, there was a lot of positive things moving towards looking at that fish species in general. And it proved to be uh, exciting because it was a, a fun process, very frustrating. Uh, about four years in, we're all pulling our hair out going, why, why are they not doing it? Why, why are they not living? And then, of course, uh, Chad Callen had success. And as Matt mentioned, uh, Chad being a Rising Tide member and also a friend and a colleague, we would have monthly phone calls with him and discuss why we're both failing at uh, – why both groups are failing at, at growing this yellow tang he was working on and blue tangs we, we, we were working on. And then, of course, he had success and shared all of the information that he had with that success, and that led to our success as well. And then, of course, Courtney had success at the Indian River Research and Education Center. It's just been a big collaborative effort and extremely exciting and a good example of what can be accomplished when multiple facilities are, are working together towards a common goal. Well, thanks for that early description or, or kind of description of how things sort of got started. And I think we're going to take a quick break before we get to the real exciting breakthrough period and hear a little bit of that from Matt. So let's take a brief break and we'll continue our discussion with Eric and Matt after these messages from our sponsors. Does your dog itch, scratch, stink, or shed like crazy? Come to Dynavite for help. Order a 90-day supply of Dynavite. Dynavite for life. Pick up two tubes of Dogosuds. Get the third tube free. Peppermint, tea tree, lavender, Dogosud shampoo. Made with all-natural coconut, jojoba, aloe. Great for healthy skin and soft, shiny coats. But no itchy, harsh chemicals. Lather up, rinse away. Try Dogosuds. Buy two, get one free. At Dynavite.com. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back. 
in continuing our conversation with my guests, Matt DiMaggio and Eric Cassiano, aquaculture scientists working with aquarium species at the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. So Eric gave us a really great overview of kind of the, the start of the uh, Pacific Blue Tang era, I guess we say. And uh, so Matt, can you give us maybe the more recent history on the tangs, including some more detail into the final month and weeks and, and week and day? And uh, Eric, you know, feel free to chime in if Matt gets all choked up. <laughs> well, we have a lot more to talk about now. If this was a couple years ago, you would have two very depressed people on the phone with you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure, as, as everyone knows, um, we have been successful at, at raising the blue tangs. Um, as Eric just spoke about, you know, it's, it's been a you know, four- to five-year process trying to figure out how to successfully get these fish through their larval period. You know, we're actually very fortunate that it only took us four to five years. Uh, Chad Callen, you know, was working on the the yellow tangs for almost 15 years before hey, they were able hey, to get those through. Yep. Hey, Matt, let me interrupt you. So can you maybe um, briefly remind the listeners or maybe even inform some why the larval period is so tricky with marine fish again? Sure. So a lot of the marine species that we're working with, and, and especially a lot of the ones that Rising Tide is focused on, are fish that have a pelagic egg, fish that spawn a small floating pelagic egg. The larvae hatch out. The, the larvae are commonly referred to as altricial. Essentially, they're really underdeveloped larvae. They don't have a mouth when they're born. Uh, they're essentially just a yolk sac and like a vertebral column floating around in it. It takes them a couple days, usually two or three days, before they their eyes develop and their mouth opens up and they're ready to feed. And once they feed, they need to, you know, you're looking at a larvae that's generally in the neighborhood of one and a half to two millimeters, you know, when it's going to be eating. You know, what do you feed a fish that's two millimeters long? You know, what do you have something that's small enough and also the correct nutritional profile that has all that the good fatty acids um, associated with it that's important for larval development. So, you know, one of the, the things that we focus on is using copepods. That's what uh, what Eric did for a long time, was trying to figure out how to raise different species of copepods, produce them in large quantities, because that's, that's really the main feed item for these fish in the wild. And also in captivity, we're finding out is that it, they're, they're pretty important survival of the larval fish. So that's one of the main, main bottlenecks initially is getting them the right feed and getting it to them in appropriate quantities. And then there's a whole host of other bottlenecks that we're trying to deal with, you know, down the line as the fish develop. They need to inflate their swim bladders. They need to go through a period called flexion when they develop all their fins. And then they need to go through the final process of metamorphosis, which is where they change from a, a larval fish, usually unpigmented, clear, you know, fish that doesn't really look like the adult form, to a, a miniature version of whatever species you're working with. And those are those are sort of the, the bottlenecks, you know, in a nutshell that we run into and why it's so difficult to raise a lot of these fish. Uh, and each species has its its own demands and it's each species is on its own, you know, schedule. They all go through these these different changes at different time periods. You know, I wanna add to that too, Matt. Um a lot of the, the hard work is of course the longevity of these larval periods as well. Uh, you know, they are in this larval state now actually we're kind of lucky with the blue tang that it they're not as long and we're talking something around 50 60 70 days and we still quite we still don't haven't quite hammered it out as to what's going to be specific as if it's going to be 50 or 70 or whatever it's going to be but that's long that's a long time you're talking two months of dedicated uh, live feed production uh, larval work and having people come in and, and literally, quote-unquote, baby these babies through this very delicate or seemingly delicate phase. 
and getting them to the point where they're starting to turn blue. It really, which some of the cool aspects of the blue tang is they start to develop these sort of dorsal and ventral spines, and that happens relatively early, like 20 days in. But around 40 days is when they uh, settle, we think, or that's when that big group settled anyway. So they go down to the bottom, but they're still essentially clear at that point in time. They have not turned blue. And you're going home at night and losing sleep <laughs> because you're worried that a pump is going to fail or you're not going to have enough artemia the next day or pods the next day or whatever the food is that you're the stage of food that, that that you're at at that point. And then, of course, once they turn blue, which I think happened at day 50 during the first run or 55 or something like that, but it happened at day 70 during the second successful run. And, um, and then when that coloration starts to come in, you know, as Matt said, it's a whole new set of worries and problems of that you're dealing with on a daily basis. So it's just that it's the longevity of that larval period and getting them to settlement. And that is, of course, something that we're trying to remedy to reduce that as much as possible. But a lot of these fish that we're talking about, and of course, like I said, we're lucky with the blue tang. Some of these species could be 100 days long in their larval period. Uh, the yellow tangs are, on average, I think, are about 20 days longer for their different developmental phases. And so, like I said, we got lucky with the blue tangs. But when you're when moving forward, thinking about how difficult it is, it's not just the food and the larval system. It, it's the dedication from the personnel as well. Two months of full dedication really wears you down. And so uh, having a dedicated crew is paramount to success. All that, too, sort of factors into the economic viability of it, which is, you yes. know, which is really what we're after, which is you know, not only can we grow these things, but can someone make money doing it, which is why we're here. We want to transfer this technology to the industry. You know, so moving forward, if you're going to grow a fish that's 40 or 50 or 60 days long for a larval period, they better be a, a higher dollar fish, which is one of the nice things is that blue tanks do command a, a relatively you know, good price. You know, moving forward, you really don't want to start with a cheap fish with a long larval duration. That's not probably right. going to be a commercially viable species. So that's that's also too, you know, helping to shape what species that we we want to focus on moving forward. So Matt and or Eric, kind of going back to you know the uh, final couple days or months or weeks, what was sort of the feeling of you guys and and everyone you know that was living and breathing and sleeping the blue tangs i mean what were they doing you know what kind of things were were going on that made maybe made you think that things were getting closer even before they actually settled out i'll add my own little pessimistic uh slight to it because i am sort of a pessimist so i thought multiple times during the trial that we had failed and they were not going to settle they were not going to turn blue but wow we learned so much during this trial and um and so the feeling, fear. <laughs> That's the feeling is what's going to be wrong today. So I'm sure, and of course, the excitement was building as we were getting closer and closer. And then, of course, when they were turning blue, it's not something that happens within a day or two either. And so, and that's, that was almost a, a funny paranoid little time as well when uh, some of the biologists would say, oh, they're turning blue. And I would say, no, they're not. They're, they're just still gray and, and this kind of grayish opaque color that they have. And so that took almost 15 days, just that process alone. So that was one of the longer developmental periods of just the coloration took very long. Flexion doesn't take that long. It's a few days and settlement doesn't take that long. It's a few days. But that seemed to be from my standpoint, almost the worst part of it. It was the the end there when we weren't really sure if they were going to turn blue or not. And for some reason, I guess that was the uh, a successful point, right? When they're blue, we won, we did it, right? So that to me was probably the scariest part. I don't I don't know if Matt has. A, I'm sure he has his own set of fears and elations <laughs> to add to that. So 
it's just it's a it's a process. It's a long process, and there's a lot that can go wrong throughout it. Yeah. So your fear is fear is pretty appropriate. And you you come in on days, and you see fish dead on the bottom of the tank, and you know it's just uh, gradual oh, yeah. attrition over. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing. Sorry. So like, yeah, we lose some every day, even when they're big. So yeah, Matt's right, and that's hard. That that hurts. That hurts pretty bad. So yeah, sorry, Matt. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, it was. Uh, you know, something that was, you know, four or five years in the making. A lot of people had a lot of effort in on the fish. So, you know, just, I mean, collaborators and the people working here at the lab. And it was, again, it was a lot of a lot of effort by a lot of people. And, I mean, the payoff has been great, you know. We, we did it the one time initially, and since that time, we've been able to do it again in smaller tanks. We've had another couple batches out to 40, 50 days. That should have settled as well. Courtney Oz's has settled the tanks two more times over at his facility, so it's doable now. We know it's it's a reproducible process, some of the things that we've been able to, you know, sort of tease out, and it's encouraging now, you know, moving forward. We're to the point where we've shown the proof of concept that it is a, a fish that we can raise, and now it's sort of dialing in the the process and trying to make that process more efficient and more cost-effective, you know, so that we can have producers come online and start pumping out these fish, you know, in commercial quantities. So, Matt, let's go back to um, the media. You know, I, I know um, since I was here, obviously, as well, that the media really kind of embraced it. And, and uh, I know you and Eric had a lot of conversations with various outlets. Can you tell us a little bit about that and the rush and the, the goods and the bads of all of that? Sure. I mean, it, it definitely helps to have a movie that grosses a billion dollars <laughs> as your, you know, as your sort of, you know, PR. The timing really couldn't have been better. It would have been great if we had these in production and people could have sold them when the movie came out, but we were a little late, you know, with getting there. But still, I mean, the timing was pretty fortuitous. You have a, a giant movie. So we were, I mean, we were contacted by CNN, came down to do interviews to talk about, you know, the process, multiple news stations, the Associated Press. Eric did some interviews with the local news affiliates here, write-ups galore in magazines and, and papers across the country. I've done interviews with NPR over in Germany. So it really got a lot of traction. And, and the great thing for me and I think for the Rising Tide program and for the University of Florida and the Tropical Aquaculture Lab is it really increased the visibility of the research that we're doing here. And it started the conversation with people of, you know, oh, well, where do, you, where do your marine ornamental fish come from? And, oh, there are really people who are actually, you know, doing research trying to figure out how to grow these fish. That sort of entered into, you know, pop culture for a moment where people were like, oh, there's people actually doing research on this and they're being successful. And aquacultured fish, you know, are a, are a viable, you know, option for some species. So that was that was really one of the great, you know, benefits, I think, to this is, is you know, having the increased visibility associated you know, with the research, which is, you know, due to the, due to the movie and the popularity of, so that was, that was great. Yeah, I agree. You know, Dory has sort of become almost a mascot for not just marine ornamental aquaculture, but ornamental aquaculture in general. I find, you know, I give a lot of tours and I talk to a lot of people. I find that uh, when you say, oh, we bred Dory, you want to go see the little Dories? They go, oh, yeah, 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 let's go. And so that, it's really become a great mascot and something that I think it's hard for, you know, mainstream lay people to understand what aquaculture really is, but they understand what Dory is. And then when they see the process, they get a little more interested. And of course, then they remember it and then they remember what they see, remember what, what we're talking about. So it, it makes it almost common 
commonplace, really. So it, it has been quite an eye-opening experience from that standpoint of view as well. And I think you might have mentioned it, but the, you know, the obviously the conservation side of it with, you know, I think that a lot of the species that were chosen had potentially maybe some conservation issues. And I, I think that the blue tangs were potentially one of them. So yeah, it's definitely been great. Now, can you guys also maybe talk a little bit about the outreach that you have done through SeaWorld and Bush Gardens at their um, at their parks? Sure. Right now, we um, we have a couple videos that are up that are looping both at uh, at Bush Gardens and and at SeaWorld, covering you know some of the research that we've done here in the process of raising the tangs. And there's there's signage and literature out there um, again, which is really great for visibility. I mean, at, at parks where you have hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of visitors a year. Again, you have you have that ability to connect with you know the general public and also with the younger generation too who are coming up and let them know about aquaculture that you know that aquaculture exists it's a field and and allow them to connect to the field and marine science in general. I mean, it is as Eric was saying too. Just the Disney movie alone. When I was at Bush Gardens for the opening of the exhibit there and having all the little kids run up and oh, this is Dory in the tank and this is and using that as a conduit. To to introduce you know, kids to marine science and aquaculture, it's really you know it's really great that we're able to do that. And the collaboration with SeaWorld and Bush Gardens has been spectacular. They've been you know a really great supporter and collaborator in all of this research. Yeah, Bush Gardens actually has an exhibit, I believe, where they're housing the blues and the yellows. Is that right? Both of them? Is that true? Yeah, yeah. I believe. Yep. I, yeah. Does SeaWorld have an exhibit too, or no? Yes, SeaWorld has a has a big rising uh, rising tide exhibit right when you come out of I believe the that shark exhibit there with a video alongside of it too. They wow. both have uh, exhibits, so it's really great. So now there is, and you've alluded to both of you have the uh, additional work. You know these are not ready to be sold at stores. So maybe if one or both of you can discuss some of the nitty gritty ongoing studies that still need to be done or that you're working on to kind of get it commercial. You know, one of the bigger bottlenecks that I noticed during the, the larval period that, that we address, and it, probably because it sticks out to me more than anything because I've tended to focus on live feeds in that first feeding phase was, you know, right after starvation, right when they're, which is day six, day seven, right when they're almost completely 100% subsiding on external food, food items in the water as opposed to their yolk sac. We lose easily half the larvae at that point in time. And uh, if we could remedy that situation, then I think uh, we'd have a lot more larvae to work with to identify bottlenecks going forward. I know uh, Matt's particularly interested in flexion. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, you name it. There's the, yeah, the really. bottleneck. <laughs> yeah, true. We, there's a lot of room for improvement right now. You know, we're in the we're in the early phases, and what Eric was just saying too, the the first big bottleneck that we run into is during those first seven days. We lose a tremendous amount of larvae, and that's somewhat commonplace for, I mean, the entire marine. A lot of marine fish, when you're working with aquaculture of marine species, those first seven days are, are crucial, and you'll probably lose, you know, the most larvae, your greatest mortality event will be during those first seven days. And whether that's due to starvation, whether it's due to environmental factors, we still have to tease out. I have some grad students working on that right now, and it's trying to figure out how much feed, how often, do we need algae, do we not need algae, how about the lighting, how about the water, you know, and we have a good base protocol, 
And now it's playing around with all those factors, the environment, the feed, all those kind of things. And, and then looking at, you know, how are the larvae survive? How do they grow? You know, and really being able to, to quantify and measure that. So we know what recommendations to make moving forward. I mean, our ultimate goal here is a cookbook. We want a cookbook recipe, you know, how to grow blue tangs A to Z that we can transfer right to the farmers and say, here you go, this is how to do it. And we're at the we're at the very beginning stages right now, but it's you know it's definitely possible, and we're working hard every day to try and get that that recipe completed. And I'm guessing uh, for folks that are wondering, I'm guessing in the wild the success rate is probably not very high either. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't even you tell ha- me. hazard a guess. I mean, you always hear the stats that the survival in the wild is terrible. I would imagine it probably is. We give them the best nutrition we know how and the best environment. But, I mean, we're our first run, we were at about 0.05% survival. We've since bumped that up to, I think, to about 0.5% survival. And even if you're in single digits for survival with marine aquaculture, you know, I usually think that's doing good. If you're at 2 3 4%, I'm happy. That sounds horrible to people, but for marine aquaculture, I'm happy to see 3 and 4% survival. That's fine by me. So, Eric, what are some ways that hobbyists can be more responsible and help support efforts in aquaculture and conservation, including you know, Rising Tide? Yeah, well, Rising Tide, you could always donate to Rising Tide. Like I said, go to the website, get involved, educate yourself. And, and that's the actually the short answer. But having a better understanding of what you're purchasing, what you're supporting, and then supporting those initiatives and, and spreading that education around. I think that's probably one of the more important aspects of it is as consumers – Supporting aquaculture, of course, I would say that, but also supporting the wild capture fisheries that are doing it right, if you will, and not depleting wild caught populations. But supporting aquaculture, of course, is is going to be uh, the number one goal. And uh, just becoming informed and educated. And and then, of course, if you do have the monetary means to donate, if it's time or money or whatever it is, every little bit helps. And that's what I always tell people is um, you don't have to – Live your day 100% when you wake up all the way to when you go to sleep supporting these things. If you just do one thing, then it's support. And as a group, like I said, a big group effort moving forward. What's the saying? The many hands makes light work. And so all working together and being informed and educating. And I think that's probably the key to success moving forward. Thanks a lot. So, uh, And also, congrats on your new job, Eric. Can you maybe give us a quick update or the listeners a quick update on what you've moved on to? Sure, sure. I'm still here at the lab, and I still get to bug Matt on a daily basis about what's happening with the Blue Tang. So that will never stop. I'm completely invested in that. My new <laughs> position is uh, assistant extension scientist, which I don't even know what that means. But it uh, basically, it's an extension agent. And so my new duties sort of include uh, catering to our clientele here, which is ornamental fish farmers, which uh, include freshwater fish farmers, saltwater fish farmers, the ornamental fish industry in general, deciphering some of that academic information, uh, getting that information out to the industry, and then also answering a plethora of questions detailing ornamental aquaculture, but really just general aquaculture as well. So it's really quite wide ranging, and I'm, I'm really happy to be a part of that taking the expertise that I've had from this project, applying it to areas where it can get to a lot of the farmers and, and sort of propagate some of these things in a, in a more efficient manner, but also uh, expanding my own expertise and uh, becoming a part of different areas within ornamental aquaculture and, and continuing to learn and continuing to grow in that respect as well. 
Great. Well, thanks for that update. And uh, Matt, maybe tell us briefly about some of the other species you and your students are working on. On the marine side of things, we're you know we're hyper focused on on the blue tangs, just trying to get those in commercial production. Uh, but we also have some other projects funded by Sea uh, World Bush Gardens, uh, looking at some wrasse species. Right now, I have a, a grad student, uh, Elizabeth Gruber, who's working on culturing the uh, Melanurus wrasse, which we're having some pretty good success with lately. The uh, yellow chorus wrasse, even though it's not a yellow chorus wrasse, it's actually a Halicores crisis. These are all Halicores wrasse species. And we're also trying to work on developing some broodstock of uh, Halicores iridus and get these wrasse species uh, in production. The nice thing about the RASP species we're working with is shorter larval duration, anywhere from 20 to 30 days. So again, we're excited about that. We've been able to, to settle the Melanurus RASPs now uh, three, four times. So those are looking good. And then we always have our ear to the ground. We still have millet sea butterfly fish. We still have uh, some angels that we work with, trying to figure out what's going to make the most sense for the industry. Um, what's going to be, you know, the next thing that's in demand, that's economically viable, that someone can take it and, and run with it. So, we're, you know, we're constantly in contact with all of our stakeholders and with Judy, you know, to see what else we should be developing. But right now, the tangs and the wrasses are definitely at the, at the forefront of what we're doing. You know, great. I want to add to that, too. Sorry, Roy, I want to add to that. We also have a great non-grant-funded fish as well, the flame hawk fish, which uh, we've had on site for, I don't know, a, a few months. Extremely popular in the trade, a pretty high price associated with it. Uh, it's not grant-funded at this point in time, but a very intriguing fish. And uh, like I said, extremely popular. And, and if they start going and breeding, we know we have a, a pair. So if they start breeding, we could be talking about them next year, maybe. I don't know. But anyway, so. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank our guests, Matt DiMaggio and Eric Cassiano, and our producer, Mark Winter, for making this show possible. Uh, Matt and Eric, did you have any final words? Um, I just, just want to say thank you, Roy, for making Pet Life Radio <laughs> extremely useful. And uh, I love listening to it, and I hope a lot of other people do too. Well, and thanks a lot. I'd like to, <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I'd like to thank Eric for continuing to bug me even in his new uh, new job. <laughs> I look forward to that and, uh, and uh, keep supporting aquaculture. All right. Well, thanks again, you guys, and I definitely appreciate all the work you do and all the uh, energy and enthusiasm and animation that you bring to the uh, industry and to everybody uh, you work with. I encourage all of you to visit my Mania blog on Pet Life Radio. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D R R O Y at petliferadio.com. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores, buy more fish, keep your tanks and fish healthy, and support aquaculture and conservation efforts like Rising Tide Conservation. Let's Talk Pets every week on demand, only on petliferadio.com.